Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23 records that during those days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. After 400 years of slavery in Egypt, the time had come for Israel's exodus. God was coming to save His people and to bring judgment upon Israel's oppressors. And so there out in the wilderness of Midian... He called to a man named Moses from the midst of a burning bush and he commissioned and sent Moses to bring his people out of Egypt and to lead them into the land which God had promised to their fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Moses, the servant of God, became the instrument of God's salvation and of God's judgment, salvation to his people and judgment to his enemies. So we read in Exodus chapter 7, verses 4 through 5, the Lord says to Moses, I will lay my hand on Egypt, and I will bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt through great acts of judgment. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the people of Israel out from among them. And so Moses went into Egypt, and through him, God poured out his judgment upon the greatest kingdom on the face of the earth and its great king, Pharaoh. Plague after plague, God wrought devastation upon the land of Egypt. Blood, frogs, gnats, flies, disease, boils, Thunder and hail and fire and locusts and darkness and death. And then finally in that great old covenant act of redemption known as the Passover, God redeemed his people out of the slavery of Egypt through the blood of a lamb. And the children of Israel left the land of Egypt and they followed the Lord through the wilderness As he manifested himself in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. All the way to the shores of the Red Sea. Meanwhile, Pharaoh was filled with wrath in the aftermath of the plagues. And he determined he was going to make war upon the people of God. And so he raised up his chariots and he summoned his armies and he pursued the people of Israel and he overtook them as they were encamped there by the Red Sea. And so you put yourself in the position of the Israelites. You have the most powerful military force that has ever walked the globe to that date at your face and you have the impenetrable seas at your back And to you, all hope seems lost. And so you can understand why the people of Israel utterly lost their nerve. They cried out to Moses, 
Exodus 14 and verse 11. Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you back in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better to serve the Egyptians than for us to die in this wilderness. Moses' response to the people ought to sound familiar to you as we've been trekking through Revelation this past year. He does nothing less than call for the perseverance and faith of the saints. Even in the face of certain death. Exodus 14 verse 13. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation which the Lord will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see them again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Shut your mouths and see how the Lord saves His people. That was Moses' message. And then as the angel of God took his stand... Between his people and the armies of Egypt. Protecting them in the pillar of cloud by day. In the pillar of fire by night. Moses turned. And he faced the Red Sea. And he stretched out his hands over the water. And the Lord sent a strong wind all night. And the waters of the seas parted before the people of Egypt. Such that the people of Israel. Such that there was a wall of water on the right hand and on the left, and dry ground in between. And so the Israelites passed through the waters of judgment safely. But when the Egyptians tried to pursue them, Moses turned back around and he stretched his hands once again from the other side over the face of the waters. And the walls of water came crashing down upon the chariots and upon the horsemen. Not one of the children of Israel perished in the waters of judgment and not one of the Egyptian soldiers survived. Exodus 14 and verse 30. Then the Lord saved Israel. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. The place, O God, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever 
and ever. That scene is the backdrop of Revelation 15. And it will be the backdrop again of Revelation chapter 20 when the armies of the beast and his followers encamp around, circle, surround the camp of the saints and all hope seems to be lost. And the Lord comes to show himself their salvation. In verses 2 to 3 of Revelation chapter 15, John writes, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Do you see how he's tying the two stories together? Just as the children of Israel stood along the shores of the Red Sea and watched the final defeat of Pharaoh and his army, so will the saints one day stand beside the sea of glass which is before the throne and is beneath the feet of him who sits on the throne and they will watch his victory once more. We have seen that in the apocalyptic visions of Revelation, this sea represents the realm of evil. It was out of this sea, Revelation 13, 1, that the beast emerges. It represents the evil world, the evil peoples. From our perspective, as we look out upon the sea, upon the the world of evil that surrounds us, the waters of this present evil world seem chaotic. They seem tumultuous, ever churning and raging as evil all around us just foments in great waves that threaten to drown us. That's what it looks like from our perspective. But do you remember what it looks like from God's perspective? From the perspective of the throne, Revelation chapter 4, where God reigns as the sovereign Lord over all, it says that sea is beneath his feet and it is as calm as glass. The raging of the nations, glass. The persecution of his people, glass. Now, however, John sees that this sea of glass is mingled with fire, symbolizing that God has brought final judgment down upon this present evil world. This is the aftermath of battle. The saints stand beside the sea in the immediate aftermath of the final judgment in the appearance of Christ. And just as the Israelites stood beside the Red Sea where Pharaoh and His army met their doom and memorialized that victory with the song, the song of Moses. So will the saints one day stand beside the fiery sea where the beast and his army will meet their destruction and will likewise sing a song of victory, the song of the Lamb. And then, Revelation 21.1, in the new heavens and the new earth, that sea, this evil realm, will be no more. So how does this scene, that's the scene, that's that's what's going on in the backdrop, that's what's going on here in Revelation 15. My question is, how does this fit in the flow of Revelation? When will this song of victory be sung? The best way to understand Revelation 15, 1-4 is as a transitional passage between the two judgment cycles we've already seen the seals, the trumpets, and the judgment cycle, the final one that is to come in the next chapter, 
the seven bowls of wrath. In other words, chapter 15, verses 1 to 4, is both a review of the scenes of victory we've already seen and a preview of the victory that is yet to be revealed. When I outlined the book of Revelation for you many, many moons ago, many chapters ago, it was at the beginning of Revelation 6, I mentioned that the core of the book of Revelation, which goes from chapter 6 to chapter 20, is a sevenfold series of vision cycles depicting the tribulation of this age and the final victory of Christ at his return at the end of the age. But within those, those seven vision cycles, there are three that are nearly identical in their theme and their structure. Revelation 6, you have the seven seals. Revelation 8 and 9, you have the seven trumpets. Revelation 16, you have the seven bowls of wrath. Each one of these cycles depict God's judgment upon the unbelieving world throughout the entirety of these last days between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And they all culminate in the final day of wrath which will happen at the second coming of Christ. You can trace that flow all the way through the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls of wrath. However, you will notice that with each one of those three, there has been an increase in the intensity of the judgments poured out. Let me show you what I mean. In the seven seals, for instance, in the fourth seal, Revelation 6, the rider on the pale horse is given authority only to kill a fourth of the earth. But in the seven trumpets, the recurrent figure is a third. A third of the earth is burned, 8-7. A third of the waters become bitter, 8-10 and 11. A third of the heavens are darkened, 8-12. A third of mankind is killed, 9-15 and 18. But in a couple of weeks, when we get to the seven bowls of wrath, you'll, you'll find that the devastation will be total. Every follower of the beast is struck with disease, 16.2. Every living thing in the sea dies, 16.3, and so on and so forth, until every follower of the beast lies dead on the field of battle. Now, I mention again that we should not think of these cycles as being in an historical or chronological sequence, as if <clears throat> the seals happen, and then the trumpets happen, and then the bowls of wrath happen. That's not the way it works. I'll tell you why. Because every one of those culminates in the return of Christ. Christ came back. The day of wrath of the Lamb has come, they said, at the end of the seven seals. And he came back at the end of the seven trumpets. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And he's going to come back at the end of the seven bowls of wrath. He doesn't come back three times. He comes back once. And so what we have in these vision cycles is the same thing being viewed in different ways in increasing intensity, all leading up to the climactic return which will be displayed for us in all of its splendor in chapter 19 and the judgment to come in chapter 20. So these visions are in a sequential, thematic kind of order, a literary or thematic sequence that is. Okay, that brings us back to the victory scene then beside the sea of glass and fire in Revelation 15. So that's what he's doing. 
He's recapping what we've seen already. He's previewing what we're going to see to come in chapter 16. Since the temporal judgments, the judgments of this age, like the plagues, that's always in the backdrop of these judgment cycles, and the final defeat, as at the Red Sea, have already taken place in the seal cycle, chapter 6, the trumpet cycle, chapters 8, 9, and 11, then what we have here in Revelation 15, 1-4 serves as a review of those victories. And so the people are singing. In other words, it looks back upon and celebrates the final climactic victory described at the end of both of those judgment cycles. But it also is a preview of what is to come at the end of the seven bowls of wrath. By the end of the seventh bowl of wrath, end of chapter 16, the beast, like Pharaoh, and his armies, like the Egyptians, will lie dead on the field of battle at Armageddon, like at the Red Sea. So whatever vision cycle we are using to describe this age, the seals or the trumpets or the bowls of wrath, the point is that when all is said and done, the beast and his followers are defeated and destroyed, and the saints of God will stand beside the sea of glass mingled with fire, with the harps of God in our hand, singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and of the Lamb, who is the Son of God. That's how Revelation 15 functions. All right? With that in mind, then, I want us to dial in at the song, verses 3 and 4. Let's look at the song of the victory itself. This is your song if you're in Christ. This ought to be a reflection of the cry of your heart even now. When on the last day you stand beside the sea of glass and of fire and you behold the enemies of Christ, those who had worshipped the beast, And spilled the blood of the saints when you see their bodies lying dead upon the shore of the sea. This will be the song of victory emerging from your lips. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. That is basically a compilation of a number of Old Testament texts. Deuteronomy 28 and 32, Jeremiah 10, a couple of Psalms. From that song, I want to point out to you four truths. Four truths about this song of victory or that emerge from this song of victory. Number one, before we actually talk about any specifics of the psalm, I just want to, I just want to look at it as a whole and point out That the judgment of God is praiseworthy. The judgment of God is not something to shrink from, to be embarrassed of, to try to obfuscate around when people want to talk about judgment. It is something to be stood upon and God worshipped for. The judgment of God is worthy of praise. See, the salvation of God is not separated from the judgment of God. For, as as we've noted previously, and as was supremely evident in the exodus of Israel from Egypt, the salvation of God's people comes through the judgment of His and our enemies. Israel departed Egypt because 
God destroyed the Egyptians in the plagues and at the Red Sea. Israel entered into the land of promise because God destroyed the Canaanites from before them so that they could enter. The salvation of Israel came through the judgment of the wicked. And the same thing is true of us in this age. The saints will not enter into their everlasting inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth until the kingdom of this world falls and the beast and his followers are judged. So singing about God's judgment is not divorced from singing about his mercy and his salvation. Nevertheless, the primary focus of this passage, as well as in the Song of Moses, is the judgment and destruction of God's enemies. For instance, I want you to take note of this line from the Song of Moses, Exodus 15 and verse 7. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, and it consumes them like stubble. Now, don't get me wrong. The judgment of God is a sober and terrifying reality. But we must not overlook that in the Old Covenant and in a number of points in Revelation, the saints praise God for his great acts of judgment. So I just want to begin by asking you, is your heart in line with that? Does that feel strange to you to praise God for his righteousness revealed in the judgment of the wicked? Now there ought to be a part of your heart that pities those on whom judgment comes because you know that You're no different and it's just by sheer mercy that you're not still under God's judgment. You ought to feel a compassion for them which sends you out to the nations before it's too late. But that's not the same thing as putting God on trial as to the righteousness of what he's doing. The heart of the saint feels compassion on the judged and worships the judge at one and the same time. Second, I want you to note that the victory belongs to the Lord alone. The saints, they are identified as those who conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. They are clear that the great and amazing deeds belong to the Lord God the Almighty. See, as the forces of darkness, the forces of the kingdom of this world press harder and harder and harder against us as the beast and his forces surround us closer and closer as did Pharaoh and his army at the banks of the Red Sea, we ought to remember Moses' words to Israel. Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The battle against the forces of darkness will be won by the grace and power and strength of the Lord. Now, I want to add one point to that too. Notice how the saints are identified as those who conquered the beast. They overcame. Quick quiz. How do the saints overcome in this age? Remember? 
Usually, it's by suffering and dying. Revelation 12, 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and that they loved not their lives even when faced with death. Here's the promise for you. You can read about it in Matthew 10. I was going to go there, but we don't have time. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus tells his disciple, I'm sending you out as wolves or sheep in the midst of wolves. They're going to tear you to pieces. You're going to be betrayed. They're going to drag you before kings and governors. They're going to press upon you harder and harder and harder in dark prison rooms trying to get you to deny Christ and to bow your knee before the beast. They're going to make you bleed, he tells them. But then he turns around and he says, but don't worry about what you're going to say. On that day, it will be given to you what to say because it won't be you who's speaking. It'll be the Spirit who speaks in and through you. It will, it will be given to you what to say. So even in our suffering and dying in this age, which is how we overcome the beast, this is a promise that his grace is sufficient for us. All we have to do is be silent and watch the salvation which the Lord will work. When your faith is tested, sufficient grace will come. You just keep believing. Third, the judgment of God is just and true. Now again, the primary reference here is to the final destruction of the unbelieving world. I want you to note this. No one in Egypt was wronged when the walls of water came crashing down upon them in the Red Sea. No one was wronged. The armies of Egypt who died there had bowed the knee to Pharaoh. And rejected the creator God. No one was wronged. Neither will anyone be wronged on the last day. When fire comes down from heaven. And consumes them. Revelation 20 and verse 9. Because they have bowed the knee to the beast. And have persecuted the saints. The righteousness of God revealed. In his judgment. Is made explicit in the very next chapter. I want you to look. Let your eyes just wander over to Revelation 16 and verse 5. And note the way the angels describe it. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you have brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. Note that last phrase. It is what they deserve. No one will be wronged on the last day. There will be two Groups of people who stand on the last day. There will be those who received mercy. There will be those who received judgment and justice. There will be no one who receives injustice. The judgment of God is righteous. It is just and true. And fourthly, God is glorified in judgment. You're going to have to look close to see this. And you're going to have to get your mind working. Are your minds working? I'm going to assume that you cried out yes and say, good. I want you to think through this. You miss this, you're going to miss a lot of scripture. The character of God is revealed in his acts of judgment. Verse 4, his holiness and his righteousness. Do you see it there in verse 4? 
That's what will lead all of the nations to fear and to glorify and to worship Him. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you are holy. All nations will come and worship you. Why are they worshiping? Why are they glorifying? For your righteous acts have been revealed. What righteous acts are they talking about? They're talking about judgment. I think, although going in depth here, I'm just going to skim the surface, going in depth would keep us here till 12.30. I think that in Revelation 15.4, we've stumbled upon the answer to the problem of evil. I wonder if you see it. The problem goes like this. Why did an omniscient, that is all-knowing God, who should have foreseen evil coming and all of the devastation that it would wreak throughout history, and an omnipotent God that is all-powerful who could have prevented all of this devastation, why did an omniscient and omnipotent God allow evil to infect and corrupt his perfect creation? You have friends for whom this is the stumbling block to their faith. Evil exists, therefore God is either not omniscient, he doesn't know everything, or all-powerful, he can't do everything, or all-good. Well, let's see what the text says here. Most people will answer that debate like they did in God's Not Dead, which is not a good way to answer it. They will say, free will. Free will is the answer to that problem. Here's how it goes, all right? Most people assume God permits evil because he wants to be loved. God wants to be loved, and that's true. And so they assume that God can't be loved unless people make a free, volitional choice to love him. Otherwise, it's not really love. So the argument goes. But let me ask you, do you believe in a new heavens and a new earth? The answer is yes. Do you believe that in the new heavens and the new earth, you will love God perfectly? Answer? Do you believe that you will have the choice not to love him? Will you be free in the age to come not to love God? Biblical answer? No. Evidently, free will is not so intrinsic to perfect love as we might think. If God is willing to remove your freedom not to love him, for all eternal ages to come. So if God is unwilling to permit evil in the age to come by removing the possibility, the freedom of not loving him, then why was he willing to permit it in the beginning? Why did he plant a tree in the middle of the garden? I think the answer is there in verse 4. As we've seen, the backdrop of this song is the judgment and destruction of God's and our enemies. The great and amazing deeds, the just and true ways refer to God's final defeat of judgment and evil. It is the demonstration of God's holiness and judgment that causes the nations to fear and glorify His name. 
It is the revelation of God's righteous acts of judgment that cause the nations to worship him. So I submit, therefore, that God permitted evil to infect and corrupt his creation because there are glorious contours of his character, namely his holiness, his hatred of sin, and his justice and righteousness in punishing and judging sin, which can only be displayed and therefore worshipped through the demonstration of his righteousness in the judgment of the wicked. God is glorified, evidently, in the judgment of the wicked, even as God is glorified in the salvation of the saints. And God would never be praised for his just and true judgments were there never evil to judge with justice and truth. That's the answer to your friend's problem with the existence of evil. The problem is not that it can't be understood. The problem is they can't accept that. It's too God-centered. The other half of this passage is a preparation for the plagues of judgment which will be poured out upon the earth in the next chapter. And we're not going to spend long on this section today because we'll cover it when we get into Revelation 16. Let me read it to you though. Verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. All right, that vision is interrupted by the vision of the sea of glass mingled with fire. Verses 2 to 4, John returns to it in verse 5. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. It's a dramatic scene. The, heaven, the heavenly tabernacle opens, right? And out of that sanctuary emerged seven angels who were dressed in priestly garments. They look like priests of the old covenant. They're dressed just like the Son of Man was in John's opening vision, chapter 1 and verse 13, signifying that they're about to act as his representatives in the judgment of the earth. And they receive a commission from him who sits on the throne to execute God's judgments upon the unbelieving world. And one of the four living creatures gives to each one of the angels a golden bull, which it says is full of the wrath of the eternal God. This is once again priestly language, hearkening back to the old covenant when the golden bulls were used in the temple service. You remember back to chapter 5 and verse 8 when the 24 elders, they held golden bulls in which were the prayers of the saints. I think there's a connection here. I think that what we're seeing here is God's answer to the cry, the only prayer of the saints that is found in this middle section of Revelation. Remember chapter 6 verse 9? cry of the martyrs, how long, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So the golden bowls full of the prayers of the saints go up, 
And in answer, golden bulls are given to the angels to send back down. Prayers go up, wrath comes down. And then no one is allowed to enter the sanctuary. It fills with smoke from the glory of God and his power. And no one is able to enter in his presence, not even the holy angels, until the wrath of God is finished. It's a, it's a holy scene. It's a solemn scene. And it will continue into chapter 16, which we'll see next time. As we close, I want to draw your attention to two words that bookend this chapter. Verse 1, John writes, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. The telestai. comes from the Greek word teleo, which means accomplished, satisfied, ended, perfected, completed, paid in full. So mark that, finished. Now look at verse 8. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke of the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Telestosin comes from the same root word, teleo, completed, perfected, accomplished, satisfied. Now, people of the book, can you think of another place in scripture where that word finished has a place of prominence. It's in John 19.30, which describes the crucifixion of Jesus. The apostle writes, beginning in John 19.28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, to tell us die, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Tetelestai, teleo. What's finished? Same thing that's finished in Revelation 15. In the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the wrath of God is finished. For those who have faith in Jesus. Over the past three weeks, I have said a lot about eternal judgment, eternal punishment, eternal damnation. And I wouldn't blame you. In fact, I'm kind of glad if you walked out of here feeling heavy. Because it's a heavy topic. It is a sobering topic. These past few weeks, we have felt the weight of God's judgment. I have prayed, anyway, that we have felt the weight of God's judgment pressing down upon us so that we wouldn't be so trite and flippant about sin and about people who are still lost. So if you have felt that pressure weighing down upon you, good. But there's a side effect. And the side effect is that when we feel that weight, sometimes it can creep in. And the dread of God's wrath can fill our hearts like the smoke fills the sanctuary. And doubts begin to come. Maybe God still has wrath for me. Maybe I'm not actually saved from the wrath that is to come. 
And it wouldn't surprise me if some of you have been shaken to the very core of your souls. So I want to remind you of the gospel this morning. For those whose faith and hope are in Jesus. For those who are described in Revelation 14.12 as those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And in 14.4 as those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. For those who say, I'm just like those who are underneath your judgment. I'm, I'm wretched. I'm a, I'm a sinner. I'm filthy through and through. I've got so much sin that merits your judgment, and yet I have heard the news of Christ from the cross that for those who will believe, it's finished And I've staked all of my hope of eternity on Christ and it's the desire of my heart to please Him and to pursue Him and to follow Him. If that's you, then you should know this. The bowls of God's wrath have already been poured out against your sin, but not on you, on Jesus at the cross, which is why He could say it is finished. No more wrath for those who hide themselves in Christ. For you, the wrath of God is finished, and the sanctuary is no longer filled with that forbidding smoke, but rather when he bowed his head and died and gave up his spirit, the veil of the temple was rent asunder in two from top to bottom, and now this is the cry that comes out of the temple for you if you have ears to hear. Therefore, brothers, Since we have confidence to enter the holy place. We're not forbidden. He bids us to come. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places through the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the veil that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near. You're not forbidden to come to God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And that's the word of the gospel for you. No more wrath. Our God is a God of judgment and wrath. And his judgment and wrath is worthy of your praise and worship. But never forget that when it comes to you who have sought refuge in Christ, His wrath is finished. His posture towards you is not one of judgment, but of mercy. It's not one of severity, but of kindness. And you don't have to fear the wrath that is to come if you've sought your only refuge in Christ. So run back to the refuge. And for those of you who have never sought refuge in Jesus, you do that today. You seek your refuge in Christ. For you, the wrath of God has already come, has already been spent, and has already been finished. My Father, as we conclude this message and this service, I pray that your people will be reminded that they have a refuge from the storm of wrath that is coming. And that refuge is Christ. And I pray for any who are here who have never sought their refuge in Jesus, that they will flee to you now. That they will go to you and say, Jesus, I'm such 
I'm such a sinner and I have no other hope of escaping the judgment and wrath to come. But I, I hide myself in you and I cry out to you and I call and I ask for your forgiveness and for your mercy and for new life to come and to dwell in my soul. Make me new and make me clean. Lord, give even in the midst of great seriousness concerning your judgment. Give great joy knowing that the wrath of God is finished for those who hide themselves in Christ. I ask this in Jesus' name.